This episode of Strange Assembly is brought to you by www.l5rsearch.com. L5rsearch.com is a comprehensive online L5R card database with tools to assist in optimizing your decks, proxying cards, or simply finding out about unusual cards. Once you know what you need, www.l5rshop.com puts cards in your hands quickly and economically. This is Strange Assembly, episode 148, Evil as an Elf. I'm Chris Stevenson, and I'm here today with Case Kayanaga. Hello. And as you can tell from the title, we are going to be talking about D&D 5th Edition and the kind of characters that you should not make. So why why is it that you have... Such a, a negative opinion of elves, Case. Well, I don't have a negative opinion of elves, but it seems to me it's like all the elves you see are good. Why are there no evil ones? And more than that, why are all elves white? Why aren't some of them Asian? Where are the black elves? That's what I want to know. Where are the black and Asian elves? Uh, I think they maybe put a darker cast on wood elves, maybe? Are sun elves or high elves, they're like golden? I don't know. Is that a separate ethnicity, I guess? Mm, all right, I'll accept that, but <laughs> I'm still a little bit disgruntled. I don't know. I, I, haven't, I haven't dug into the 5th edition player's handbook to see what they, they did with the you know 17 subspecies of whatever. But, of course, anybody who knows Case could probably guess that we're not really going to talk about D&D 5th edition. Not? We're not. We're not I mean, we... We could, but I we'd have to talk about it after we talk about the whole you winning the North American Championships of Legend of the Five Rings at Gen oh, Con. Right. That that, that thing. That, that thing. Yes. So uh, this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. Once you're done with this episode, you can check us out at strangeassembly.com or subscribe on iTunes. But for now, I think uh Probably because he's about, what, several orders of magnitude uh, better than me at L5R, Case? I, I think we should just let you mostly talk about your take on the L5R environment going into Gen Con, and then uh, how things went for you at Gen Con. Well, just uh, as it probably can tell, it went went pretty well for me. I think over the weekend I was 13 and 0. It was, it was a completely undefeated tournament for me, which is obviously really nice. It was kind of a weird event going in. There was a ruling on Fires of Turmoil that people kind of had to look at and wonder about. And then there's a tech errata that was handed down kind of right before Gen Con, which fixed the Fires of Turmoil, which I think actually had people mostly happy. I know I was pretty happy about that because it meant I didn't need to cram... Uh, what was it a voice of experience and fires of turmoil and everything? <laughs> Which I was, I was, I had like nine voices and nine fires of turmoil, and I was ready to cram that into just about every every deck that I had. So let me ask you, I, I just curious. You mentioned that was technical errata. I looked at that errata. I'm like, that's not really technical errata. That's just changing what the card does. Did you think that that was really technical errata? Um, it is and it isn't. It's bringing the card in line with what it was designed to do. Which was, in battle, you bow like a guy or an attachment. Obviously, not having the word enemy 
in it meant that it could target strongholds or holdings. It could probably target, I mean, if they existed, it could probably target regions. But uh, it, it kind of, obviously, it just wasn't meant to do that. As a defender, if your opponent is buying a whole bunch of stuff, you can be like, I just defend over here. Now I'm going to bow all three of your holdings so you don't get a dynasty phase. And then I'm going to attack back, take two provinces, and have my own dynasty phase because you can't really do anything on turn three with two gold. So it, it wasn't something that was going to be like environment deforming, but it was something that everybody kind of had to be worried about because the worst case scenario is your opponent just plays two of them and you lose the game on turn three because you attacked. That does sound pretty miserable. And I, I tend to feel like anything that makes somebody go, oh, hey, I should fit this into every single deck, that that feels environment deforming to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it wasn't that it was, it just had the potential to be that way. So I think, I mean, I was actually in the room when the decision was made because Randy Green Jr. is he's a really good friend of mine. He's on the design team. And he was thinking about whether this was the right decision to make or not. And so when he decided to go ahead with it, we were actually sitting right there. Me, like myself, Andrew, and uh, some other of the Seattle crew. So it was kind of interesting that we were kind of just like in the room while he was going through the process and they decided to make that errata. It occurs to me we should probably do some introductions because it's probably not a good idea to assume that all of our audience knows who everyone is, who even you are. So Andrew is Andrew Ornatov, correct? Yep. Andrew Ornatov, uh, he's the founder of Team Marika's House, basically. We're not really a team as much as we are just a group of friends. His wife is a wonderful painter. Her name is Marika, thus the name Team Marika's House. And we play at their home, uh, usually weekly leading up into Gen Con. We meet a little bit more often. Randy Green Jr. is a design team member from Vancouver area. And my, I'm from Seattle area. Uh, I've uh, won some stuff. I'm Case Kiyonaga. I don't know. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, you have... Is this your third Gen Con or your second Gen Con uh, event? This is, this is my second win. I made the finals last year and lost to Faceless. That was kind of disappointing. Yeah, and then you have about a dozen Kote wins under your belt, if you just count that uh, one year. Oh, if I just count that one year. <laughs> uh, yeah, something like... Uh, I think it was like seven? Was a, yeah, I think it was seven that one year. Uh, I have... I don't know, like 20-something Kote wins. <laughs> I, I lost track. Yes, I, I I could see that. You're not you're not the guy who has to have in his signature on a forum like every time he made top 16. <laughs> well, now that you mention it, I should go back and add in all my top 4s and top 8s. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't have that many more when I think about it. <laughs> you're like, I, I, what are you talking about? I make top 8, I win. I Okay, so... What was your assessment of the coming storm environment You're going into Gen Con beyond? Apparently, you thought Crane Scouts was the best deck. Actually, I don't think Crane Scouts was the best deck. I think that Unicorn Blitz is the best deck. Unicorn Blitz, by its very existence, kind of pushes out all of the honor and dishonor decks from the environment. It is so hard for them to stop the turn three attack with cavalry. And it's basically, like, if you're playing Scorpion Dishonor, 
Unicorn Boots will have infinite ways to take your province on turn three. And the gold is just insanely good. And it's it, it's just a nightmare matchup for them. Like, they lose the first one on turn three. They can't buy enough to prevent themselves from losing another one on the next turn. And sometimes with a good hand, the Unicorn Boots can even attack two provinces. So it just is it's just a miserable, miserable game for honor and dishonor. And I thought that Unicorn Blitz was going to be probably the most represented deck and also was the best deck in the format. That said, I felt like everything that was played in Gen Con would have to build to beat it. So it was kind of a metagame choice where I had a Unicorn Blitz deck that I really liked, and it was actually better against pretty much everything that I played it against, except in the mirror, because I was running the Fear Sensei. So, I was always going second in the Unicorn Mirror matchup, and I was like, this is not something that you want to be doing right now. If you're going into a Unicorn on Unicorn Mirror, you really want to be winning that, that die roll, because going first is is just incredibly powerful. Especially for the Blitz decks. So, I actually played a couple of different things. Like, the Dragon... Fallen deck was actually another thing that I was looking at. It's basically the same one that I played in Seattle. And it was also really good, because it beat Unicorn really well. The problem was is it had a much more difficult time with Honor. Like, you were never beating Crane Honor with uh, Dragon Fallen. And even though I didn't think those would be like a really big presence in the metagame, uh, th- I mean, there's always some people that are playing Honor. There's always people playing Dishonor. And both of those are much harder matchups for the Fallen deck than they were for the Crane Scout deck. So, it's kind of how I arrived at Scout Military. So, how specifically did your Scout, uh, I guess, other than Akagi Sensei, uh, <laughs> did you... <laughs> uh, I mean, what specific ways did you adjust your deck to deal with the uh, Unicorn Blitz? There were a couple of things, like, it wasn't that much. It was leaving in the three Gensai's, the two, three... Cavalry move and shoot guy. He's really good against Unicorn because obviously he's a cavalry defender, so you can just cav in to oppose him and defend. He's a scout, which helps. He's he is expensive. Like most of the crane personalities are not very force efficient. I mean, you're paying seven gold for a, like a three three. You're paying six gold for a two three or a two two. But they all come with battle actions and against. Unicorn, if you can just outlast them for the first four or five turns, you're going to end up with battle actions in hand, and they're going to have like a whole bunch of province reduction and maybe some force pump. Uh, and, not, and just not a lot of actions. So, it's also, he's really good if you can get another guy in against incapacitated because of his movement action. So, it's basically, he just works really well against their action set. The other thing was the one Daidoji Ryushi. Usually you're just going to buy him as a 4-gold body, and he's just like a 2-1, which is pretty bad. But every once in a while against Unicorn, you actually get to have him as a reserve guy. Especially on, like, turn 3 or something, if you are playing against Unicorn Blitz, they absolutely have to attack on their turn 3. And if you can just go, like, guy gold and leave up 4 gold to defend with Ryushi, he comes in as a 4-force body. And is actually fairly difficult for them to remove, because if they just incapacitated him and then you Akagi back in, they've burned one of their best battle actions, 
and he really doesn't cost you anything, and he's kind of like a fake cavalry. That was kind of like the only real cards that were still in there for Unicorn. Like, Akagi Sensei itself is just really good against cavalry. It's really good at defending, and it's really good at attacking while still being able to defend, because he can run a guy away. So, I didn't really have to put in that much to make it really good against Unicorn. Was there anything that you wanted to avoid seeing with your Crane Scouts? Not really. One of the biggest advantages that this had was it was really solid against most of the field. I think I beat two Lion, one Dishonor, and one Honor. And then everything else is military of some kind. So traditionally, those are kind of like the worst matchups for you know, a fairly high honor military clan. They're either not able to get forced that quickly and lose to the control decks, or they're too based on going first and they lose to the other factions that go first. It basically it just gives you a lot of play. You have some matchups that are difficult, the ones with a lot of weapons, but you do have Daidoji Ujiro, who sets his force in someone else's to go along with Thoughtless Sacrifice. Doji Soika can drop a guy with two weapons back down to like three force, four force. And uh, things like holding cells and persuasive tactics are actually really nice at dealing with one big guy as well. Now, you, you talked about in the Unicorn on Unicorn matchup the importance of going first. Uh, are you amongst those of us who think that in general in Ivory going first is still just a significant advantage, or do you see that differently? Well, going first has always been a super significant advantage. Like, going first, you kind of get to set the tempo of the game. And in Ivory, the problem is is that there's not enough of a compensation for going second. Having a couple of extra province strength, like the Lion Stronghold, right? You get, like, I think, plus two province strength, and that's it. Mm -hmm. That's not enough. The problem is not that you're losing your provinces too fast when you go second. The problem is in tempo. You don't get to buy stuff until after your opponent does, which means that as soon as your opponent attacks, you'll be even on stuff on board because you'll have gotten your turn, but you won't have any resources to defend with. Especially in Ivory Edition, I mean, a lot of actions cost gold. Inspired leadership, if it's going to be good, is going to cost gold. Deliberations holding cells, and persuasive tactics. Like, these are all cards in that I was running, and new cavalry tactics as well, that cost you gold. And when you're defending and you have these cards in hand, you don't have the option of just not buying as much so that you can play these on defense. Like, you still have to spend all your gold in the dynasty phase. So you're basically just hamstrung into not running a bunch of powerful cards or not being able to play a bunch of powerful cards just because you have no gold. And then once you lose that first province, your opponent has more freedom to not defend and just let you equalize because they can just do it again the next turn. So going second is is really, really crippling in Ivory in a lot of military and military matchups. Now, that doesn't mean that like Lion is the end-all be-all or anything because you can definitely win going second. And both my games in the finals against Aiken, I went second. But 
it is a fairly large disadvantage, and in in some matchups, it's just absolutely crippling. The matchups where it's a lot more tempo based, like unicorn mirrors, like lion mirrors, going second can just be that much worse. Uh, with crane, it didn't matter as much because there's a lot of play in every battle. Like actions are flying all over the place. But for the most part, you really don't want to be going second right now. Now, you've talked about working on Unicorn deck. Uh, Unicorn deck obviously played a Crane Scouts deck. You talk about uh, considering Dragon Fallen. The general consensus seems to be even, well, for one of them at least, including Post-Aelids, that going into this, that Crab and Spider did not really have any sort of chance. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel for those clans in the arc format that you can see, or do you think Spider's just waiting for everything to be strict at the end of the year? <laughs> I, I won't, like, the, the first thing that I built after TCS came out was a Spider military deck with, uh, what's it, the guy that throws a Spider personality to kill something from home. Yeah, yeah, Susumu and yeah, Yekuan, Susumu Takuan, 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 there yeah. you go. And I do think that Spider actually got the best personality in TCS. What's his name? The guy that looks at the top five and draws two and then reorders the next three. Sure, yeah, Eyeball eyeball Hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> eyeball, eyeball Hands is a good name for him. <laughs> uh, um, but the problem is, is like, that's not really what they needed. They needed a way to regain tempo. And they didn't get it, and I don't see any way that that happens in a line in the sand. Crab like dishonor, I think, was the way that they were winning tournaments, and I think crab dishonor is pretty solid. But I don't really see any light at the end of the tunnel for military decks, at least. It's just a it's a really rough time to be a low honor military clan because you don't, other than mantis, you don't have the comeback mechanic. Or the like tempo gain mechanic, like bamboo or yeah, bamboo harvesters was, and your personalities are just as expensive as everyone else's, so you're not gaining tempo on province buying on turn two or turn three. So it's just just a really rough spot right now. Did you also play in the? You played in the Invitational, I would assume. Uh, I did not actually. Oh. The only event that I played in was the main. Uh, were you off? Uh... Streaming Hearthstone, or <laughs> uh, I was actually just uh, kind of enjoying the con. Like I've actually never gotten a really good chance to just kind of wander around, and this year is just the, the first chance I got to do that. I said, you know what? I don't really want to play draft, and I don't really feel the need to enter a whole lot of the side event tournaments. So I'm actually just going to enjoy Gen Con. Because every other year I've been, you know, like last year I played in the Invitational on Thursday, and I played in the Big Deck on Friday, and I played in the Main deck, main Event on Saturday and Sunday, and then the con was over. <laughs> so this is, this is the first year I actually got to wander the dealer hall, you know, demo some games, do stuff that, meh, most, most people who go to the con normally do. I, I certainly understand that. I spent all day Friday in the dealer's hall, and I... Probably would have spent more on Thursday doing other things, except the the siege games took longer than scheduled. Did you have the 
I, I guess you wouldn't have had it at the con, but have you had any chance to mess around with the siege decks that Ra- Randy bring one to your to Marika's house? Or <laughs> oh no, um, we I know that Andrew is actually playing the Dark Naga or the the whatever the people are trying to kill. Yeah, whatever lieutenant he had, at least once or twice that I saw. So he probably got a chance to play around with them some. I didn't. I, I did watch some of the Dark Naga stuff, and it seemed pretty interesting. Kind of a pretty fun little multiplayer kind of thing that is actually maybe balanced, unlike you know War of Honor, where there's a lot of out-of-game politics going on in every game. <laughs> so, Yes, I, I've always had a preference for team-based multiplayer because... That ultimately, in some sense, it gets it back down to one-on-one and mostly eliminates politics. I mean, you could always have the people on your team squabbling, but that, right. you know. But that you don't have like two people working together against one person, and the fourth person is kind of clueless, and they're just kind of like, "Well, we're just going to eliminate that guy because we want this person to win, and then we'll just team up against the other guy, and then I'll concede to you." And it, it ends up being almost like you're playing an RPG character at a Winter Court <laughs> LARP session or something, because it's like, it, the game doesn't actually matter that much. Yes. Uh, like, it's just like, okay, w- these are our plans, we got to get through them. I do recall that coming up the one year at Gen Con when they... Uh... They ran War of Honor as the an alternate format event. Yeah, I believe it was, uh, I believe the finals was like, uh, I'm not going to say it was a setup because it's not like any of the things that they were doing were illegal, right? And by the rules of the game. Yeah. It's just kind of like, well, like, I don't want to play the game within the game. So. Yes, yes. There was, yeah, there were definite plans and, and people with prearranged notions. And I mean, it wasn't just one way, right? At some point there were, you know, two brothers in there who were in the same game, and yeah, they actually actually it was funny from what I heard. The two brothers went after each other really hard. Oh, <laughs> because they, they wanted to knock each other out, and they ended up knocking each other out. It was it's pretty funny. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the politics happens, but not quite the way you'd expect. <laughs> uh, yeah. See, that's I I never like uh particularly saccharine uh, sayings. I like ones that have a little bit more of an edge to them. One of the ones I always liked was, nobody hits my brother but me. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That was pretty much what happened that year, if I I remember correctly. So, yeah. Yeah, So, no, that's that's that. No, it's good that you got to go out and stuff. Yeah, I think uh, on Friday morning, at least Andrew played as the, the Dark Naga, and he won because... I played as the Dark Naga on one of the slots on Thursday morning, and I won, but by the time Friday rolled around, my burning of the peasant district had been negated. <laughs> so, <laughs> No more trogdoring around, huh? Yeah, well, no, I'm, I'm glad that some of the second city ended up getting destroyed, because it would have been a bit of a letdown story-wise if you had this big, huge assault by the Dark Naga on the second city, and the result was, eh, 
Yeah, yeah, nothing happened. He didn't the, even the burn Ashigaru, down the president. Even the Ashigaru fought him off, right? Yeah. That would have been pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's not that I, I don't want the Dark Naga to destroy the second city, but, you know, let's, let's make this a real fight. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's how it, it ended up. I am actually extremely, just as a side note, I'm actually very glad that they got the players who wanted the Dark Naga to win playing the deck itself rather than you know, potentially having three people's experiences ruined because the Dark Naga is playing against three people and then the fourth one is also on the Dark Naga side. I thought that was a really good compromise set that popped up. Yeah. I wasn't sure how many people who played the Dark Naga wanted it to win or versus like I signed up for because I just wanted to be able to to play both sides. I played against the Dark Naga at 9 in the morning on Thursday, and three of the five of us were scheduled, I think were scheduled to play as the Dark Naga at some point later in the weekend. <laughs> so, uh, that was interesting. Yeah, I and I know that that was an issue. There had been chatter on the internet about, oh, this is how you can throw the games <laughs> and do this and do that dumb sort of thing, and they'll never be able to to do anything, and I know that Reese was very on the lookout for that at the start of the weekend, although I, I do think that the um, Hail Caesar movement may have helped the Dark Naga. <laughs> I, I, I know when I worked over at one, the, there were only two on Saturday, I think, but when you, I, yeah, I looked at the one and I'm like, there's there's only three people playing against the Dark Naga at this particular slot, which favors the Dark Naga as compared to the usual five. And yeah. Two of them have Yodatai decks. Hmm? Like, uh, that's uh, that that did not end up going well for the <laughs> for the yeah. second city. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, of course, one of the the things that I guess officially happened as a result of that, but I presumably they wanted to do it anyway, or else they would have not put it on the table. Was that the Naga are coming back? Are you one of the people who's super excited about the Naga coming back, or are you one of the much smaller number of people who are like, well, I, I know, there's nine factions and they can't balance them, so why bring a tenth? Or, I hate non-humans. I actually like non-humans, and, I mean, my last name is Kiyonaga, so I've actually had people be like, hey, you should play Naga when this when I first started playing. I actually have never played when the Naga are around. The only non-human faction that's been around has been Rattlings for as long as I played. I like the Naga. I like the Naga that they printed. I mean, obviously, I, I think between last year and this year, like the two decks that I've run have had like 20 Naga in them. Because <laughs> last year I was running, I think, 10 Naga in the, the Phoenix version, right? The Phoenix non-humans. And then this year, I guess maybe not 20, more like a, Fifteen, because this year I had Zenithar, Shakash, and the Dark Naga. Um, so clearly, I I have all sorts of problems with non-humans. Yes. <laughs> um, no, I I actually like the Naga coming back. I don't know how they're going to really add a tenth faction, because right now, I mean, in my opinion, there's only like four or five playable factions. So it it'll kind of bear waiting to see how that turns out, but yeah, I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I like the Naga. Uh, kind of excited to see them, and just to see like more themes for another playable faction. Yeah, I mean, I think the 
the two more particular questions I would have, although I'm, I'm happy to see the Naga come back. I, you know, don't tell Jay, but the Rattlings <laughs> never really did it for me as a faction. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I mean, I like the Naga back when they were around is that they mechanically, a lot of the stuff that some well, not a lot but maybe a lot but at least a, a substantial chunk of the stuff that they did the mantis already do i don't know that that really means you can't have two shooty factions but i mean the crane do a lot of shooty too so i, I don't know that that's really an issue but i'd be interested to hear reese's take on that and then there's just not a terrible lot of slots in sets for personalities given how many yeah. clans there already are so it would be interesting to see how they will deal yeah, with that. I mean, there, there's a, a whole bunch of questions regarding the Naga coming back. So, I don't know. It, like I said, it'll kind of be a wait and see, in my opinion. Because if they do it well, then it'll be great. If they don't manage it well, then it's going to be not so great. So, As with many things. <laughs> I don't know what the increased degree of difficulty for going from nine to ten faction is. I don't think it's, I don't think it's really possible for them to actually balance nine factions no, or it, ten. Or not. I mean, it's it's not. <laughs> it's just a question of how far off they get. Is it within whatever the acceptable tolerances are? They just there's so many, and they just have to deal with so much player guff about it. We'll say like, well. If green's not that good this year, nobody's really throwing a fit. Yeah. But, you know, if your your clan is bad, then eh, you're not going to be that happy. One of the bigger problems, too, is the... I don't know how true this is, but it seems like the clans that are traditionally good also make the most noise when their clan is bad. So, like, the, the high honor clans seem to be a lot more vocal when their faction is bad. I don't know if that's true. It's just kind of a observation that I've kind of noticed. I don't know. Now, watch, I'm going to get like a ton of hate mail from like Crane, Lion, and Phoenix players. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, I'm trying to to think about like Emperor or Crane were pretty abominable throughout Until the entirety the of that. I'm not sure how noisy they were about it all over. I mean, they obviously weren't thrilled with it, but they never... I feel like L5R player bases sort of go through cycles about whose turn it is, oh, I guess, yeah. to be the the grumpy cesspool of negativity. <laughs> I mean, well, like, although you know, we ended up winning a after the Heavens Net, the Dragon Boards for maybe a year, a year and a half, were just Venomous. Oh man! <laughs> the dragon boards for the longest time had had just no rules. Like there were just no rules. And wild, wild west. Yeah, and the very first time there started to be rules was at some point in that time frame. It just had to be if your post is a pointless, vile spewing whatever. Like you've just got to stop it because it's. It's making the boards miserable to be on. It's not like yeah. everybody else isn't thinking it. <laughs> but uh, and it feels like the the spider boards have taken that role for the moment. Yeah, I mean, it also kind of depends on what you had last arc 
because the spider have been pretty miserable basically the whole time they've existed except for when they had breeder. Yeah. And like other than that, they really haven't been good just at all. So no. they, they do have a lot to gripe about. <laughs> yeah. Right, there's sort of that difference between helpful griping and not helpful griping. The sort of place, right, since I moderate the current Dragon Boards, you know, the sort of place where you start to get really useless to me is when your posts are things like the design team is incompetent and I'm just never going to play L5R again until they're fired. They hate us and... That does not really contribute anything. Also, if you're not even playing, I really don't want to hear you complain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've basically just been like, well, I'm still playing this game, which means I'm just going to complete my complaints myself. Or, like, if I'm going to complain about it, it's going to be to close friends, people I know and trust. I'm not going to go around on boards and start, you know, poking holes into as many design team members as I can, right? You know what I think would be especially worthless? If you had some sort of podcast and, you know, you just got on on a regular basis and mm-hmm. yacked about yeah, things that, that were wrong with the, I, I don't know what kind, of, bad. Yeah, what kind of arrogant <laughs> schmuck would do that. <laughs> you'd, you'd have to be pretty bitter to do that, right? <laughs> especially for, like, I don't know, like 140-some episodes? Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they stopped all being about L5R at some point in there. <laughs> but so we talked about the the Naga coming back. There were a, a bunch of other storyline effects went in there. You had, it, a t- unless I'm mistaken, you had two storyline choices to make, which was when you entered the top sixteen, you had to pick your personality who was going to be championing the Imperial District, and you chose Kikita K, who, for those who are not aware, is a is a vanity card for an actual player. And then you chose to have the crane support Saken. Did you have any... I'm sure you had a particular reasoning behind Saken. Maybe the reasoning behind K was just, I like Kikita K, so I picked her character. Yeah, I mean, uh, Kikita K is Giovanni Avilas' character, her, uh, her vanity character. And I was like, well, I'm playing crane, and she's my friend, and it's her birthday in, like, four days, so... This seems like a great reason to choose this character, especially because I'm going to say this and a lot of people are gonna, might be really mad. I actually have no attachment to the story, except for that I want it to be interesting. I don't care at all who which characters do what or what happens or anything like that. As long as I get interesting stories out of it, I'm fine. So this is kind of like, I mean, you could just have any any random samurai story where he kills a dark naga and blah, blah, blah. I think this is kind of interesting because the story team is going to have to work to make it a workable, believable story. And I'm really interested to see what they do with it. So that, that was kind of like the reasoning behind that. As far as Seiken goes, I think the, the other one is like the spider guy, the spider heir. And he's already been like denied the crane once. So... Like, let's let's have it. The story kind of makes sense rather than have it backtrack on itself. Yes. So you had a final that was crane on crane, and maybe and you, outside of AEG, would be the best person to confirm this. So my 
my understanding, it, what I was told was that because the finals was crane on crane, the actual first battle as described in the story prize would be crane on crane, but then the third place lion clan would end up supporting Shibatsu, or did they explain uh, how that was going to work out? Not at all. Not so at all. This is, okay. This is news to me. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no. Well, this, see, this is why I'm asking, because you're getting things third hand right. Well, because they had the, they had the post about the Gen Con wrap up, but they didn't. Uh, yeah. Actually, say I, so. I, okay, so I believe that is correct from what I've heard and been told. And actually, as a kind of a nice shout out to the Crane on Crane final, the story that has the death of the Dark Naga is going to feature both the character that I chose and the character that Aiken chose as well. Obviously in different degrees of roles, but both of them are going to be in the story. Now, who was Aiken? I believe it was Daidoji Tobe, the fallen crane. Oh, well, there you go. Kakita Cake and in- inspire him to redemption before the Dark Naga kills him. With Kay surviving? I don't know. That's... I, I just hope that the uh, unstoppable strike from like three years ago <laughs> is going to be just like a giant roundhouse to the Dark Naga that knocks him out or something. I don't know. Maybe she'll kill him with haiku. Yeah. If we want the story making sense, I, I I don't know if her personally striking the killing blow. <laughs> Maybe she'll like give uh, Tobey like a weapon to kill the Dark Naga with? Or... I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how they do it. I would think they have had some sort of notion of if somebody picks a frail elderly courtier or some other non-combatant, how is it that we are going to represent that? And, And I think there's plenty of ways that you can do that sensibly. So... It'll be interesting to see. I, I I have faith that the story team will make a story that is interesting and makes sense. So, so Gen Con was the coming storm, and you played in uh, the ARC tournament. There was also a strict tournament, and ALITS is out now. It's going to be tournament legal soon. There's going to be a lot more strict. What are you looking forward to playing in ARC or in Strict once ALITS becomes tournament legal? Uh, I actually have no idea. I think that, like, I, I've only seen a little bit of Line in the Sand. It looks like a very honor-heavy set. I know there's a lot of honor senseis, like seven or eight of the sp- clan-specific senseis are honor. Or honor focused. Yeah, because each of the every single clan had an honor or a dishonor theme. Yeah, as, as one of their side themes, and I think maybe maybe one of those was in the base set, so they are all just then stuck in alits. So yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a military player. I have played honor before. I don't really like the way it plays I'd much rather be the person forcing things and and like attacking I, I've played switch decks and that's about as close as I've gotten to playing real honor or or dishonor actually in in a tournament so this set isn't like super exciting for me I do see a lot of powerful cards 
like the the crane sensei is I believe it's just like after you win a duel bow to draw a card or something like that. Uh that sounds right. Yeah, it has no drawback if you are a military dueler. It's got yeah. some sort of restriction on your deck construction or holding usage like, or Yeah, I think it's like you don't gain honor from uh holdings or something. Yeah. That sounds But good. uh that one actually seems pretty exciting to me cuz I mean, I've played Fallen out of Dragon. I've also played it out of Crane at the beginning and Phoenix. And I think Crane Fallen Dueling is, you know, a pretty solid archetype, even though it hasn't really gotten much. And losing Akagi Sensei really, really hurt it after that, uh, those two erratas. So Mm -hmm. that's actually kind of exciting for me. Like it, it helps out with that deck quite a bit potentially. As like the the lion sensei with the basically pay three gold gain an honor get a get a spirit actually seems kind of interesting to me but I want to attack with it with like contentious terrain and stuff <laughs> just because I like attacking and then what's the other uh, young sensei the the karmic sensei also yes. seems really really good to me but it is an honor set which like I said is not super interesting to me. I'm kind of looking forward just to playing Arc, just because I like full Arc more than more than I like the Strict format. But Strict is actually looking more appealing to me now because when it was just two sets, like it was really difficult just to scrape together enough personalities that were like remotely in your deck's theme that were in your clan. So it's looking a lot more fun now than it was before. One of the things I've been thinking about more with the difference between Arc and Strict and then thinking about it with the three gold holdings is that in Arc, you have the ability to run lots of four for fours. And so, for example, your deck at uh, Gen Con effectively had nine Bountiful Fields, Productive Mine, and then Jade Pearl Inn, which works out to be a super duper four for four. Yeah. Uh, More like a five, five or a six eventually. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, use yeah. Get the the deep harbor of the bookkeeper, and and if you have it on turn one, and just go to town. But in strict, bountiful fields is the only four for four, and that one four for four bountiful fields is a farm which raises the specter of getting of just losing to colonial conscripts. <laughs> so that card. Yeah, I. I do not like the existence of that card at all. I don't either. But, yeah. Eh. Yeah. So, but I, so I guess what, what are your thoughts on the best way to construct a gold scheme with, you know, four golds versus three golds versus two golds, especially looking at that, this potential that, you know, by the end of the year, we all of a sudden just won't have four for fours anymore. Well, the four for fours are really strong in arc, you get to run basically the minimum number of holdings. And the, the thing with the gold pooling now is that you really have to spend all of your gold for the first couple of turns. Otherwise, you can just fall behind and just never catch up. So the 4 for 4s are really, really important for all the 4-gold production strongholds because... It spends all your gold on turn one, and it only requires you to find one, so you have a lower chance of getting gold screwed. And then they also buy themselves, which 
I feel is something that's really, really important to note because all of these holdings are going to be efficient for what you, what, you know, what you pay. And it also just means that you can just cram any number of them into a deck and it'll work out just fine. Like, I think I only ever got not a four for four or like JPI plus one on turn one twice. And one of those games, I just bought a marketplace and a deep harbor because that was what I flipped. So like having these four for fours just makes your gold smoother. Like your turn one is better. Your turn two is better. And obviously you don't get that like, oh, I get turn one double marketplace, right? And then turn two, I get four holdings. And then turn three, I just win the game because I'm producing 25 gold or whatever. <laughs> right? But it's very consistent. It's something that you you pretty pretty much always can count on having like 16 gold on your turn three if you're running that many four for fours. So the the one thing that you do lose with making the transition from arc to strict with a three gold production stronghold is the best holding that you have, which is Suana Dojo. Yeah. Right? Like, you don't have that four production on turn two anymore. But then, now you kind of have the same kind of thing, except everything is scaled down one, so you have a three for three, and then next turn you buy two more three for threes, and it kind of like, it's kind of the same in terms of its consistency, you just have everything be one less. So, you lose basically four gold, which is a giant pain. And it's basically going to be a fight to see how much that four gold hurts you versus how much utility you get out of all the senseis that give you minus one gold production. I don't know for sure, but I can't think of if any of the senseis in the main event were minus one gold production senseis. I don't know of anybody that had one. But... I don't think any of them were, which will kind of clue you in on how valuable that extra gold is. To me, at least, it will be interesting to see if with Alitz and there now being a lot more minus one gold production sensei, there's something in there that can be good enough that people are actually doing well in tournaments with a, a minus one gold production sensei, because if they don't then I think people are just going to be in permanent hate mode yeah. on minus gold production sensei. That's kind of where we are now. <laughs> but, well, it, no, no, yeah, right, yeah. You see the A-list previews. Every time there's a minus one gold production sensei, people are like, oh, my God, this is terrible. I think, I feel like it's not entrenched enough that if, if young sensei or, you know, right, my Tamori sensei is a minus one gold production, if one of those actually ends up giving you enough, that it ends up, that the deck ends up being good, then people can be like, oh, hey, we, you know, not that they'll be consciously thinking it, but they won't just automatically dismiss it. But I think if we go the entire year, you know, Alitz and, and whatever, ever playable. Yeah, then it's going to be a real problem, especially because right, Ivory, Ivory Two already went to the printers, so yeah. if the negativity about the minus one gold production sensei continues, that kind of means that they have to that they should stop making them because you I think don't want to be trying to make cards that people don't like even if you think you can make cards that objectively people should like once they're kind of 
entrenched against them, it's it's just not going to work. You'd have to make them broken for people yeah. to like them, and then that causes its own problems. And and then the people will say, well, that was just that one because it was broken. You kind of have to like leave it alone, come back to it two years later or however long. So that would be bad if everybody hated Three Gold Production. And then, of course, there's the <laughs> fact that not only would... In theory, it should limit design, but it won't have limited design because it'll be too late. Yeah, they have to design stuff too far in in advance. So I, yeah. I hope that something works out. I do too. I think Young Sensei has the best chance of actually being a playable minus one gold production Sensei. You can churn a lot. I'm not. I'm not positive what the best thing to do with him. Man, there's always like just I'm gonna churn for weakness exposed. There's plenty of four focus value meta karmic cards. Magistrate Falls, let's go. <laughs> go get a Magistrate Falls. Um, yeah, that card. Yeah. I do agree with you. Like, I, I just, it, it's gonna take so much for three. Like, Lion compensates with three gold by getting to go first basically every game. So, the hit that you take from all the gold lost senseis is just too big because like if you put a minus one gold on let's say crab or even worse let's say spider spider is never going to play that unless it is just stupendously broken because they can't afford to they start every game behind anyways and so having that loss of gold and combine that with a personality base that is not meant to have a three gold production stronghold. It's just it's just far too much to overcome, especially right now when going second is compensated the least that I've seen as long as I've been playing. So it, it is true. All the three, uh, all of them are just going to be basically poo poo. People are going to try them. Don't get me wrong, like. Some of them have powerful effects, but it it's basically going to be like a you gotta prove yourselves to me before I even think about trying you because it's just way too much. Most people aren't gonna want to try to put in the number of games that it would take to make a playable deck with a minus one gold production strong uh, sensei. So, do you think Kuroko Sensei is has a incredibly powerful ability, or is she unplayable? <laughs> Which one is Kuro? Uh, let me look it up. Well, the the spider sensei for this set gives them minus one gold production. So. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean. She's their Susumu honor sensei. She's basically ish. Bow, yeah. bow your guy, get an honor. Being two honor, sorry. Sort of. Ugh. Yeah, I mean. The honor you get from starting with Kuroko sensei only puts it ahead of Scorpion and Coin Flip of Mantis. It is bow to gain two honor kind of thing, but it also you have to bow a guy to do it as well. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you see honor decks and dishonor decks. Sometimes they can't even afford to bow a guy to take the favor, just like a, a battle action that's going to save them a province. They can't afford to do it just because they don't have enough guys to defend with. So. If, if the sensei itself just bowed and you didn't have to bow your courtier, I could see it maybe being like a somewhat playable if, you know, if there's like actually a spider honor theme. But 
Yeah, I, I just can't see it actually working. The minus one gold is just too much. Yeah, we talked about the the going first thing. With the gold production, do you think that there's a case to be made for just evening out the gold production across the clans, or is there some important distinctiveness that is too big a deal to lose by, you know, knocking line to four, knocking unicorn to five, I'm sorry, knocking unicorn to, down to four as well, and just putting everybody on an even keel. And then obviously with Lion, you have to fix the going first problem too. But Yeah, well, you wouldn't even necessarily have to do it as, as much. But yeah, you can't give everything to one group, right? Like at the beginning of the arc when Crane had the plus one gold, like they were going first and they had the gold. Unicorn right now is super strong because they're at five gold. I do like the fact that there are some factions that don't have four, just because it gives them a little bit more identity. They're a little bit more unique, and it lets you do some things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. But in terms of balance, it would be a lot easier to just make everybody a four. Yeah, I mean the flip side of saying, well, we have a we have a faction that's only got a three gold, so that lets them now we can give them something else special somewhere else to make up for that. You know, lions. Being I'm always first. Uh, <laughs> the flip side of that is, well, that means you have to take Unicorn or anybody else that you give more than four and just inherently build weaknesses into them, which results in lots of everybody else complains about the five gold. Then the you know whatever clan is getting the five gold is going to complain about whatever weakness you build into them. Like, oh well, yeah. we just make all your guys cost one more. Yep. I don't know, you know. <laughs> whatever <laughs> that's yeah that's kind of what happened for a little while actually like years back yeah there there have been long stretches where unicorn was awful because their guys cost infinite gold for like two fours and then there was a little stretch where they were bonkers they, they've always had some spectacular uniques right you can you can go a long way in big deck with unicorn uniques but with obviously chags topping that list yeah not Harris or Shono or something? Uh, <laughs> I don't think, like, I actually even wasn't around when Harris was, so I hope you hear horror stories. Uh, yeah, well, I guess, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we'll get somebody to, to talk big deck. I, just, I guess it feels like Chagatai's ability to take two provinces in one turn. Oh, yeah. He, he kind of ruined, like, half an arc. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the, a, a bit of a trump over the other, uh, amazing unicorn uniques that have been around over the the years. I mean, and that's... I feel like I'm fairly in a minority on this, or maybe I'm just the only one who thinks about it, that I... I like unique cards. I think they add some great flavor, and so even though mechanically, I think you would never want to have such a thing as a unique card, right? Like Magic. The only reason Magic has unique cards is because they want to have a format where they don't ban things for power reasons, so... Yeah. Okay, so we're going to have a restricted list, and then you can all go play modern instead. Yeah. But I, I like the flavor that the especially unique personalities brings for L5R, but I do wish that the notion of unique personalities are allowed to be better just did not exist. I guess they'd end up being better on average, because probably if somebody's important enough to be unique... 
you would want to make sure that they weren't bad. And they probably did something to earn it, right? Like, the Topaz Champion is going to be unique because he won the Topaz Championship. In the story, they probably have done something of note. Yeah, so, so, so you want them to not be bad, and they're probably going to be more powerful once they're on the table than the average personality, but, but you know, you can just make them cost more. You can have big, flashy things that aren't necessarily more powerful, but it's sort of like, well, it's okay if he's just way too good, because he's unique. I, I'd, yeah. I'd prefer not to see that, but, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how many other people <laughs> let's, agree let's with that. Let's not have another Chagatai in Reign of Terror that he had. <laughs> You know what? Here's my prediction. Chagatai is so amazing. He is going to be in Cons of Tarir. Or, I'm mispronouncing that, aren't I? Uh, the magic, I the, oh, oh, it's the magic Con- big fall site. Yes, Tarkir, yes. <laughs> there you go. That's, he is. Oh man, that would be pretty funny. He is going to be there. Bam! <laughs> so powerful, he jumped into a different game and was still broken, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think, uh, going back to the whole uh, gold production and balance, though. I think it would be better rather than to just homogenize everything. I mean, we, we kind of had it with, like, bamboo harvesters, right? And going all the way back to when I started, when you had a favor returned. Just, like, give them some extra gold at the beginning of the game to just let them have a chance to catch up. I really like the design of the Mantis Stronghold, the going second effect. Mm-hmm. With the two extra gold, because Mantis is one of the few low honor factions right now that can actually catch up to and fight with high honor military. Just because they get that two extra gold and they can actually keep up in production and then stick it up and, you know, stay in battle and fight it out with other factions. That kind of thing seems like a really underexplored balancing method. Yes, yeah, you could just bring back bamboo harvesters. I've I've heard someone uh, suggest what they just call right the Hearthstone method. <laughs> you start with a fate card in your hand that is right. That's basically the Mantis box once yeah. per game, like two extra gold. Yeah, I think that would work out really, really well. Like I think that would help balance things a lot. Okay, so is there is there anything else that you wanted to cover? Anything at all? Well, I guess anything at all about L five R or. Not L5R if we wanted to go back to talking about D&D. Uh, <laughs> I'm really excited to see that they, the the new brand manager that they've hired. Uh, I've gotten a chance to talk with Rob Vox a little bit, and he seems like a very reasonable person. When I just spoke speaking to him, it's you know a conversation that we're having, and uh, he seems fairly receptive to what people are saying. So. I think that was that's a good hire for them, and I, I hope he does really well for the company. Actually, now that I, I asked you for whatever you wanted to say, let me ask you about one of the other sort of swirling around topics sometimes is, I guess, what do you think of the Ivory Edition rules generally and sort of specifically how they've been implemented in, you know, some of the... <laughs> Rulings that have confused people, or wordings that have not come out great on cards, or... Um, well, okay, so, as far as, like, rulings on cards and, and how cards are worded, I mean, th- those are things that are always going to be missed, right? Like, at some point, like, it's impossible to catch everything. So, I like, you can give every company a pass on 
them as long as they don't pop up too frequently. For the most part, AG's been really good about when those things are caught, taking a very active stance on changing things. So, you know, bravo to them. I'm glad that they've been taking or handling these things the way they have. As far as Ivory rule set goes, I think obviously the big thing we'd we'd have to consider is the gold splitting. I think gold splitting is overall good. I think it really helps new players. It's it's intuitive. Like it just it's something that makes sense. I will say that the one negative that I've found from it is that it tends to exacerbate luck. And I was actually talking to Rob about this at Gen Con. There were a lot of people that, you know, you would talk to them and you'd say, hey, what, like, how'd your game go? And they'd be like, oh, I lost the game on turn two. Because on turn one, I flipped only, like, I flipped a four for four. And then on two, I flipped, like, a two-cost holding and a three-cost holding, and that's it. So, basically, the point is kind of that if you aren't able to spend all your gold on turn two, you're kind of not really in any different situation than if you didn't spend all your gold on turn one. You're just a turn later. So you kind of get gold screwed on turn one and on turn two, possibly. And every time that happens, it's it's like, a you know, instead of having gold screw happen one game out of 20, because it can happen twice, it's a much, much more frequent thing to the point that I think that it, it shouldn't be. Like, gold screw can happen a lot now. Much, much more than it used to be when you could only buy one thing with one thing. Like, you can't buy your stronghold and buy, you know, a, a, uh, a family dojo and a family library. You know, you have to choose one. Then next turn, you only have one extra thing to buy stuff with. You only have to find one more holding. Well, now, if you don't have four for fours or three for threes or what have you, you have to find, like, three or four different holdings just to spend all your gold. So you have to, like, find it on turn one, and then you have to get lucky enough to find it on turn two. And, like I said, I think the net positives of gold splitting outweigh the negatives, but this is kind of like a direct consequence of gold splitting being a thing in that you just have to find more holdings now. And it just exacerbates the luck factor that can happen in every game. And then as kind of a side consequence, your turn three is worse as well, because obviously this can happen no matter what you do, where you just flip gold, 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 and then you're out of the game, right? Or flip guys, no gold, then flip guys again, no gold, and then flip all your gold, and then just kind of lose from there. But uh, all three of your turn, first three turns are just like that much more important, which is kind of a stark contrast of maybe like three years ago when we were still in uh, Legacy Holdings in Celestial, where even if your first flip was terrible, you could always go find a holding to put into play, and then your next flip was the one that mattered. So you kind of had two chances to not be unlucky. Whereas now you have two turns where you have to not be unlucky. And then the third turn is kind of when your game actually starts, and you still have to get not horribly unlucky. 
I don't know if that made sense really, but that's kind of like one of the concerns I have going forward with Ivory Edition. Most of the games I've lost in tournaments have been me going, okay, turn one, gold holding. Or actually not just me, but a lot of people have been turn one, buy a holding. Turn two, flip like a two for two and another two for two. And then two guys that I can't buy. Buy the two holdings and then turn three, my flip is just super awkward because I'm down four gold from where it's supposed to be. Yes, if you, if, if your deck is all two for two holdings, you effectively need to see six of them yeah. in your first two turns. To be fair, you now have the built-in rulebook Dynasty Mulligan for turn one, so it's not like yeah, it's just parts, the initial yeah. flip, but, but yes, and it, you can run what feels like a normal number of holdings if you're loading up on four for fours or if you're a three gold stronghold with three for threes if you're all two for twos you i don't know how many you have to run to to really to bring your numbers up and i think that's part of it is that you just have to run more holdings than you used to have to run yeah and that's that's fine it's just that every time you have to add more holdings it's kind of weird because every time you do that, it just pulls the deck a little bit more into that whole can get unlucky. Except you just move where the turns are now. Instead of like one, two, three, you have a higher chance of getting unlucky in turns four, five, six. Yeah, because you get a bunch of holdings instead yeah. of instead of guys. And it's kind of more of a concern for strict because I mean, like you said, there's only the one four for four right now. There's only bountiful fields because right now we have. Bountiful Fields, um, Jade Pearl in, Productive Mind, Nexus of Lies. Like all, you can run all 12 of those if, if you want. And then you'd only need to see one. Obviously, you need to play some one cost for JPI, but. Yeah. You know, that's 12 holdings that you only need to see one of on turn one and then two of on turn two. But in Strict, you don't have that option. Nope. And the, like, it's, it's something that's felt a lot more in Strict when I was. I've only played a couple games of Strict, and it was pre-Line in the Sand, but it just, like, the game just felt miserable to me because it was all about your gold flip. It was, like, the only thing that mattered was the first couple of turns, and then if you got your gold and your opponent didn't, then you win. If your opponent got their gold and you didn't, then you lose. And, like, very rarely do you actually play a game where people can do kind of what they want to do. I bet you are not going to like Coastal Lane. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh no. What does it do? It's a four for five, but it increases your deck size for every copy that you put in. It lets you play with something that's better than a four for four in strict, but at the cost of having the lower, you know, including some lower tier of deck. So I, it just makes more variance in in your starts. Yeah. That's not too bad, except that, that what are you going to do with that extra one floating gold? Like, are you going to run a bunch of one-for-ones? I don't know. I think that you mostly just use it on turn three to have a little extra for attachments or, yeah. or guys or something. It wasn't so much as I, I thought you would dislike it as the power level of the card, but it seemed like concept-wise, uh, the way you're talking about 
disliking variants in the gold. Yeah. Anytime you increase the maximum deck or the minimum deck size, it's gonna cause some all the numbers to get pretty loopy, right? Yeah. Forty six is really different from forty. But yeah, the more I I worked with the the gold schemes for strict, I'm like, man, I the better it makes this coastal lane look. <laughs> yeah, it's strict is where it's going to be felt the most, just because. And, and actually, I I kind of dislike the way it works out, even in arc, because it basically makes all the four for fours must runs, like. Productive Mine and Jade Perlin are two of the most expensive cards in in the arc because they go into all the four cost or four gold production strongholds because you kind of just have to run them. Like you don't really have a choice. You have to run a JPI. You have to run Productive Mine, and most of them are going to run either Nexus of Lies or Bountiful Fields, depending on what kind of deck they are. So it's just kind of like you you are pigeonholed into a gold scheme. Because it's the only one that's efficient, and, and with strict, you just—I mean, you, you're going to have to cram like 19 holdings, 20 holdings into a deck. Yes, I I do adore the the four for fours. Oh, it is kind of like a weird gripe to have, but I think that overall the uh, the gold splitting is a positive. It's just that. I don't think that this was something that they foresaw when they instituted gold splitting. And it's it's a it's a pretty big thing. A lot of people that I, you know, a lot of my friends and and opponents and stuff, you know, they're like, "Oh yeah, I, you know, I lost last round because on turn 1 I flipped a 4 for 4 and on turn 2 I flipped a clan holding and no guys that I could buy." Or, you know, something similar happened like turn 1 I only flipped a 2 for 2. And then turn three, I flipped three holdings, but they were all four for fours. So I could still only buy one, right? Like, it, this kind of just... Variance is uh, is much more felt than uh, I believe it has in in past years. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, part, part of the game is figuring out how to win even when you don't get a good gold start. Like, you know, I've had I had a couple of games where I was like, well... My turn two, I got a holding and a guy. All right, how am I going to win this game? But, uh, yeah, it is it is something that I think they have to keep an eye on. So, Okay. Well, thanks for coming on the showcase. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, always a pleasure. Maybe uh, we, we can do it again if you win next year. <laughs> <laughs> I sincerely hope that I am back doing the exact same thing in, uh, was it, 346 days or something? Gen Con's earlier next year, I think. <laughs> yes, it is a couple weeks earlier next year. I have not actually checked on the calendar, but I, I think that's right. A couple weeks earlier. Sincerely so. hope that I'm back doing the same thing. So. Okay. <laughs> you have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can check us out at www.strangeassembly.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or follow us on Twitter. We're at strangeassembly. 
I always like to hear from our readers and listeners, so you can contact me at chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Case Kianaga, I am Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.